Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath. And I'm Rahul Demania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome to our episode of a three-year-old girl with recent cough and leg, wi- leg weakness. Here's the case presented by Rahul. A three-year-old, previously healthy female, presents to the hospital with a two-week history of productive cough and congestion in a new one-day history of bilateral weakness. Today, mom noticed weakness and inability to stand or walk after a shower and her voice becoming really hoarse. She also noticed her lying more limp, sitting on her lap, unable to sit up fully without her mother supporting her. She had no real trouble holding her head up However, mom did endorse increased fussiness. She had decreased PO intake and her last meal was actually 24 hours ago. About one to two weeks prior to this acute presentation, the patient had a history of non-bloody diarrhea that resolved spontaneously after just a few days. The patient had normal urine output and no real breathing difficulty. There's no history of head trauma or trauma to the lower extremities. Pertinently, there is no erythema or swelling to the joints or any pain associated with leg movement, as well as no previous history of difficulty walking. As a pertinent negative, the patient has been developing normally otherwise. Continuing on, the patient had had no fever, recent travel, or history of a sick contact. The patient has had no allergies, her immunizations are up to date, and her initial workup, just to jump ahead, showed a CMP that was largely unremarkable a leukocytosis with a CBC white blood cell count of 19.7 with the left shift, a thrombocytosis of 647, and CRP and ESR that were unremarkable. On vital signs, the patient is mildly tachypnic and hypertensive. The patient on physical exam on presentation to the PICU had coughing and a hoarse voice. Heart and lung exam was normal, the abdominal exam was normal, and patient didn't have a rash or any other extremity finding. On neurological exam, her pupils are equal, round, and reactive, and she did have three to four strength at the ankles and knees with good five out of five strength in the arms. She had deep tendon reflexes that were present in her upper extremities, but none at her patella or ankles. When we told her to walk, she had a wide-based ataxic gait and needed to hold on to the bed in order to ambulate. To summarize, this uh, three-year-old girl has cough with hoarse voice, no fever. Uh, She's unable to stand or walk, which is basically lower extremity weakness. She also has no deep tendon reflexes in her patella or ankle. She has a normal mental status. She has non-bloody diarrhea that has uh, preceded this neurologic weakness. And all of these things, I think, bring up the concern for a neuromuscular weakness, such as a Guillain-Barre syndrome which is essentially an immune-mediated disease, possibly triggered by recent infection, and is targeting her peripheral nervous system. So Rahul, let's transition into some key uh, history and physical exam components in this case. So what are the key history features in this three-year-old child? Well, Pradeep, to kind of recap what you just talked about, this patient has this acute leg weakness that is in relation to a diarrheal prodrome. The patient also has a cough and hoarseness, and this really makes me concerned for some 
airway issue that may be progressing in this patient. As a pertinent negative, the patient had no fever, no rash, or any history of trauma, something we would always think about when somebody comes in with extremity weakness. So I wanted to ask you, Pradeep, what are some red flag symptoms or physical exam components which you could highlight in this case? I think, Rahul, what concerns me is the bilateral lower leg weakness uh, with the absent DTRs. And it appears to me that this is a symmetric weakness that is actually ascending. The child also has a normal mental status and uh, also has no history of recent trauma, rash, or fever. Rahul, to continue with our case, can you comment on the patient's initial labs and if any imaging was done? Absolutely. So when we did our initial workup, we did not find any pertinent positives in our labs. The CMP, CBC, and blood gas were relatively unremarkable, except for the leukocytosis and thrombocytosis, which I mentioned initially. The patient's inflammatory markers actually were low, and in the setting of muscle weakness, we got a CK, and that showed a normal value, which suggests that we are not dealing with something like rhabdomyolysis. Looking at her urine studies, she had a normal UA, and we then transitioned our workup to really going for the central nervous system and working that up. So we did a lumbar puncture, and that revealed colorless CSF. It had about four white cells, no red, so it was a champagne tap, and a glucose that was 73, and pertinently, a serum glucose that was 90, and an elevated protein at 94. So we really were focused on the central nervous system. And just to rule out infections, our gram stain and the culture were negative. So now that we worked up the central nervous system, we wanted to get imaging. And we got the MRI of the brain and lumbar spine in this setting. And despite getting these imaging modalities with and without contrast, we could not find anything focal. We also wanted to look at her chest x-ray, and that showed no infiltrator atelectasis. As a pertinent negative in this case, there were no nerve conduction studies that were performed. So just to kind of summarize for us uh, going through this case, when you think of a patient who presents with acute ascending lower extremity flaccid paralysis with a CSF showing a protein predominance, that is particularly an acellular protein predominance, we should really have Guillain-Barre at the top of our differential. Now, the MRI brain and spine is actually really necessary to rule out any other etiologies that is going to cause this focal weakness or a focal neurological deficit, such as a brain tumor or spinal pathologies. So what are some of the features that really support the diagnosis of Guillain-Barre syndrome? Well, let's go through them. Number one, when you have a progressive weakness that is going to be subacute, days to a few weeks. The weakness, as we saw in the history, is symmetric and it is ascending. These patients may have at times mild sensory symptoms and of particular concern, cranial nerve involvement. Now, in some severe cases and some variants of Guillain-Barre, as we will talk about, these patients can actually have autonomic dysfunction. And at times, these patients may spontaneously recover two to four weeks after the onset of the peak, but they may need further treatment modalities. And so we'll go into that later on in this episode. Rahul, let's start with a multiple choice question. All right, here we go. A five-year-old girl with acute ascending 
bilateral lower limb weakness who has a normal MRI and CSF with acellular protein predominance would require immediate airway management in the PICU if the patient has which of the following features? A, chest radiograph with large atelectasis. B, a maximum inspiratory force of minus 40. C, a vital capacity of greater than 25 cc's per kilo. Or D, a strong cough. What do you think is the correct answer here? Rahul, uh, this is a great question. I think the correct answer is A, a chest radiograph uh, showing uh, large uh, uh, atelectasis which suggests upper airway compromise and weakness of pharyngeal and laryngeal muscles, leading to difficulty in clearing of secretions and airway maintenance, and probably resulting in aspiration. Maximum inspiratory force of less than minus 30 centimeters water is also a risk for respiratory arrest, i.e. more subatmospheric, the better. A maximum inspiratory force of minus 40 in this question is actually good. It is more than 60% of our predicted value. The answer C is wrong because it's a vital capacity of less than 20 that puts patient at risk for respiratory failure, not a vital capacity of greater than 25 cc per kilo. A strong cough is not an indication for intubation or suggestive of impending respiratory failure, but hoarseness or a weak cough is. Remember, trends are more important than a single value. In infants, inability to lift their head when supine, bulbar symptoms, tachypnea, increasing O2 requirement, and use of accessory muscles of respiration implies impending respiratory failure. Remember, hypercarbia is a late finding of impending respiratory arrest in neuromuscular weakness. That's a great summary, and thanks for the detailed question explanation. Remember that PFT measurements in Guillain-Barre syndrome is best remembered by this mnemonic, 20, 30, 40. So let's go through this. 20, you want to watch for a vital capacity of less than 20 mLs per kilo. 30, you want to watch for a maximum inspiratory pressure less negative than minus 30 centimeters of water. The more negative the number, the better. The more positive the number, the worst. 40, a maximum expiratory pressure of less than or equal to 40 centimeters of water is important for us to trend. Serial measurements are required, and this is the 20-30-40 rule. Rahul, what is the pathogenesis of uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome? Well, to be honest, in looking at the literature, the exact pathogenesis is unknown, but it usually involves a trigger. So usually this is an immune trigger, such as an infection, a vaccine, and all of these, they really affect the peripheral nerve components. And the particular mechanism, very high yield, is molecular mimicry. Now, a GI or upper respiratory tract infection or illness within four weeks of presentation triggers the onset of Guillain-Barre syndrome in a predisposed population. Possible viral agents or entities include cytomegalovirus, which is detected in about a quarter of a cases, Epstein-Barr virus, influenza, as well as HIV. So what about bacterial triggers? Well, if you think about bacterial triggers, watch for mycoplasma, hemophilus, and most commonly, and this is what comes up on boards all the time, is campylobacter jejuni. And that actually accounts for almost a third of cases of Guillain-Barre in the US and Europe. Now, although rare, 
vaccination, say from the flu vaccine, surgery, trauma, transplant, lymphomas, or even autoimmune conditions such as lupus can be associated with Guillain-Barre. And recently in the news, Guillain-Barre syndrome was seen after exposure to Zika virus and has been described with most patients actually having a complete recovery if they undergo this exposure. So as we think about our case, what would be your differential, Pradeep, for Guillain-Barre syndrome and also neuromuscular weakness in general? Rahul, this is an excellent question. And, and, and this concept is very frequently tested on the pediatric as well as pediatric ICU boards. Uh, so starting from top to bottom, a patient who is encephalopathic, uh, typically the location of lesion should be in the cerebral cortex or the brainstem. Uh, in such a case, a patient will have altered centrium, seizures, autonomic dysfunction, and mostly upper motor neuron findings, as well as um, seizures and movement disorder. Cord compression or transverse myelitis, uh, the location of lesion is in the spinal cord. Etiology is unclear, but MRI will reveal the inflammation within the spinal cord. A sensory level is typically present on the back of the patient. Uh, there is bilateral sensory motor or autonomic spinal cord dysfunction. Bowel bladder dysfunction at presentation or that which persists should lead to questioning of the diagnosis of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Typically, the tilt tone is maintained in Guillain-Barre syndrome as opposed to a spinal cord lesion such as transverse myelitis. Uh, the next diagnosis to consider is acute flaccid myelitis. The lesion is in the anterior horn cell. Sudden onset of arm or leg weakness and loss of muscle tone and reflexes are seen in this condition. It is usually preceded by a viral infection such as an enterovirus D68. Listeners should be vigilant for vaccine-preventable diseases that are making a comeback, such as poliomyelitis or polio-like illnesses. The next lesion is botulism. The, the location of the lesion is the neuromuscular junction. Presynaptic binding of toxin prevents the release of acetylcholine in the synapse. Infants can present with constipation. Descending paralysis with early bulbar findings, weak cry, poor suck, and bilateral ptosis are seen in botulism. This can very rapidly progress to respiratory failure. Myasthenia gravis, the location of the lesion is also in the neuromuscular junction. Autoantibodies directed against the postsynaptic acetylcholine receptor leads to its destruction. Typically, ocular and bulbar muscle weak is common, and fatigable weakness is the hallmark of this disease. Organophosphate poisoning, the location of the lesion is also in the neuromuscular junction. It inhibits the acetylcholinesterase, leading to acetylcholine and its action at the neuromuscular junction. Muscle weakness with meiosis, diarrhea, urination, lacrimation, salivation, and bronchorrhea are seen and are commonly remembered by the mnemonic sludge. Tick paralysis, the location of the lesion is in neuromuscular junction also. The neurotoxin from the tick prevents the release of acetylcholine in the neuromuscular junction. Cetric ascending paralysis with areflexia is seen, and the sensorium is completely normal. Periodic paralysis, the location of lesion is in the muscles. Episodic muscle weakness trigger exercise, carbohydrate-rich meal, which typically releases insulin and decreases the potassium in the system, uh, can lead to periodic hypokalemic paralysis. This is a genetic mutation affecting sodium, potassium, and calcium ion channels. Rahul, 
If you had to work up this patient with Guillain-Barre syndrome, what would be your diagnostic approach? Now that we have a differential, let's make a diagnostic schema. What we want to do is we want to get blood tests, we want to get CSF tests, and we want to get imaging of the central nervous system. So in terms of blood tests, you want to get your basic lab, CBC, CMP, CRP, ESR. You may even want to get a GIPCR for Campylobacter jejuni. As we know, that is the most common infection in the U.S. giving rise to Guillain-Barre. Now, when you get your lumbar puncture and you are looking at your CSF, you will typically see an elevated protein and normal cell count. And this is called albuminocytologic dissociation. This is actually present in about 65% of cases in patients who have Guillain-Barre syndrome. Initially, what may be seen is this albumin cytologic dissociation in the first three days, but you may see this after even a week. And so sometimes you may have to consider repeat LP if you do not have a diagnosis by that time, but a high index of suspicion. An elevated CSF count of greater than 50 should really cast a doubt on the diagnosis of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Again, this is going to be antibodies, which are going to be found in the CSF, and hence why you are going to have a high amount of protein. Now, in some esoteric scenarios, you may want to get nerve conduction studies. Now, nerve conduction studies can help diagnosis in difficult cases and help differentiate between axonal and demyelinating subtypes. We already covered in this episode the various differentials that arise at the neuromuscular junction. And so the nerve conduction studies can help aid in the diagnosis of these neuromuscular junction disorders. Now, when you're really going to be finding the diagnostic yield of nerve conduction studies, it's usually going to be about two weeks after the onset of weakness. Now, nerve conduction studies in acute intermittent demyelinating polyneuritis reveals features of demyelination such as reduced nerve conduction velocity, prolonged F-wave latency, and prolonged distal motor latency and conduction block. Again, you're getting demyelination of the peripheral nervous system, so conduction is going to be slowed. Axonal Guillain-Barre syndrome reveals decreased motor or sensory amplitudes, especially with absence of demyelination features. Finally, you want to get antibodies. And this is such a unique variant, which I'm going to introduce, and that is the Miller-Fisher variant of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Now, in this syndrome, or in this variant, you can see anti-GQ1B antibodies. Again, anti-GQ1B antibodies associated with the Miller-Fisher variant of Guillain-Barre syndrome. You may also see this anti-gangliocide or GM1 antibodies, and that's seen in about 50% of patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome secondary to Campylobacter jejuni infection. Now, the GM1 antibodies, I will say, are relatively specific, but not sensitive. Ahul, can you comment on the Guillain-Barre syndrome variants? Absolutely. This is very unique, and it allows for us to go into Guillain-Barre in a little bit more detail. Now, as I mentioned, Guillain-Barre is also known as acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. And patients who have AIDP usually have the best prognosis. And remember that AIDP 
is synonymous with Guillain-Barre syndrome, and it's the most prevalent form in Europe and North America. Now, there are some subsets, and one of the subsets that I want to talk about is AMAN, also known as acute axonal motor neuropathy. Now, in this scenario, as the name suggests, these patients have little to no sensory symptoms, and it predominantly presents with a progressive, flaccid, ascending quadriparesis complicated by respiratory failure. So these patients need to be monitored in the PICU. There's also a variant known as ASMAN, and that stands for acute motor sensory axonal polyneuropathy. Now, in this scenario, you have both sensory as well as motor fibers which are involved, and it is a form of axonal Guillain-Barre syndrome and actually considered a variant of acute axonal motor neuropathy. Remember, ASMAN has the sensory component. And finally, I alluded to this in the episode that there is this Miller-Fisher variant. Now, in the Miller-Fisher variant, patients present with an important triad, areflexia, ataxia, and ophthalmoplegia. And in, with this triad, these patients can actually progress to acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy in some to many of the cases. Rahul, that was excellent. Can you comment on the autonomic dysfunction that may be typically seen in Guillain-Barre syndrome? Absolutely. So about 50% of patients diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome will have some form of autonomic dysfunction. Now, this could be related to diarrhea or constipation. It could be related to changes in heart rate, for example, bradycardia. Patients may even develop hyponatremia and essentially have SIADH. Other features which are important to monitor at the bedside are signs and symptoms of low cardiac output suggesting a cardiomyopathy, syncope, urinary retention, blood pressure instability, reversible cardiomyopathies, or even Horner syndrome. Cranial neuropathies are seen in over half of the patients, and this actually presents as bulbar weakness, facial palsy, and ophthalmoplegia. There's a small subset of patients with Guillain-Barre who also have hypoglossal nerve palsy, so they may have issues with moving their tongue. Now, bradycardia may be difficult to treat in patients who have autonomic dysfunction and Guillain-Barre syndrome. And this is where you may need to partner with your cardiac intensive care colleagues and consider pacing these patients. Patients also related to the autonomic dysfunction may have excessive sweating and fixed pupils as part of their autonomic dysfunction. Finally, a small percentage of patients can actually have pain that is going to be in a ridiculous pattern. So let's close this podcast now. And Pradeep, I want you to really comment on what is the management framework of Guillain-Barre syndrome. So Rahul, the management of a patient with Guillain-Barre syndrome really requires a multidisciplinary collaborative effort between the intensivists, the neurologists, the rehab teams, and the pharisis teams. Approximately 25% of the patient will present with risk factors for impending respiratory failure. These children should be intubated early. Uh, the mechanical ventilation of just children is also going to help facilitate procedures such as the need for MRI, lumbar puncture, and even placement of a catheter for plasma phoresis. 
Patients who have bradycardia, cardiac dysrhythmias, and hemodynamic instability can be very difficult to manage. Sometimes, as you mentioned already, bradycardia may require pacing. The help of the cardiologist or our CICU colleagues is typically required in such cases. The first-line therapy for management of a patient with Guillain-Barre syndrome uh, includes IVIG and plasmapheresis. Plasmapheresis removes neurotoxic antibodies, complement factors, and other humoral mediators of inflammation. Treatment with plasmapheresis should be initiated in the first two weeks of the onset of weakness. Typically, five sessions, each administered every other day, are required. IVIG can improve symptoms by unknown mechanisms. IVIG improves symptoms by unknown mechanisms. It is believed that IVIG inhibits the FC-mediated activation of the immune cells, binding of the anti-ganglocyte antibodies to their neural targets. But IVIG may also suppress further antibody production and reduces the T-cell and macrophage activation of the immune system. IG is typically used as 2 grams per kilo over 1 or 2 days. Please note that steroids have no role in the management of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, the use of IVIG or plasmapheresis has shown equal efficacy, meaning if uh, IVIG is readily available, it should be used ASAP because I know the uh, plasmapheresis will take time, placement of the catheter may take some time, and given uh, staffing shortages, plasmapheresis may not be readily available. Now, the new uh, therapies such as the use of ecolizumab currently in the phase two trial has shown promise, but we require more randomized controlled trials before this is brought down to the mainstream. Patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome, especially those who are intubated, require prophylaxis against uh, thromboembolism with the use of low molecular weight heparin. They also require pain management with opioids as, well as gabapentin. There may be need for management of urinary retention as well as constipation. A frequent turning of the patient will prevent a bad sores, decubitus ulcers. The aggressive physical, occupational, and speech therapies are required for this patient. Rahul, so what are the main takeaways from today's episode? All right, listeners. So let's go through three take-home points. Number one, Guillain-Barre syndrome is the most common cause of acute flaccid paralysis in children. Watch for symmetric ascending paralysis, mild sensory symptoms, cranial nerve involvement, autonomic symptoms, and a prodrome prior to the onset of these symptoms. Number two, risk factors for acute respiratory failure in Guillain-Barre syndrome include elevated CSF protein during the first week of disease, a short interval of time between prodrome and onset of Guillain-Barre symptoms, cranial nerve involvement, and weakness that waxes and wanes. And then finally, number three, watch for that Miller-Fisher variant. These patients will present with Guillain-Barre-like symptoms and also have a triad of areflexia, ataxia, and ophthalmoplegia. So watch for diplopia as a presenting symptom. This concludes our episode on Guillain-Barre syndrome. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by myself, Pradeep Kumar, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.